Well, thank you. And uh, some of what I'm going to say today is related to what I talked about yesterday, you know, the, the um, nutrition and immune function and the things that you do to build your system. It's a lot of what we're going to talk about with long COVID. But I'll just start by saying that um, uh, last year, I took the month of December because I'm such a party girl, and I spent about 200 hours looking into this. And the reason I was interested in getting to the bottom of long COVID is because millions and millions of people are claiming to be afflicted. And what I wanted to figure out is, is this something unusual that we've never seen before? Because people have trouble recovering from the flu sometimes as well. Or was this just um, tied up with all the hysteria that normally goes with everything COVID? So anyway, I'm gonna share with you what I found out and hopefully you'll find it helpful. And I have slides which are mostly to keep me on track, not because they're particularly fun for you to watch. But anyway, um, long COVID, what is it? Who has it and what to do about it? And this is the significantly abbreviated version because the entire lecture, even before we get to questions, if I delivered it in its entirety, would be a little over three hours. And that's, that's a little bit long for a Sunday morning. So we'll see what we can figure out looking at the abbreviated version. I think I can give you the general idea. So the first problem that we have in investigating long COVID is the definition is fuzzy. It really does depend on who you ask. Um, and another thing is that the idea of having trouble recovering from an infection, respiratory, gastrointestinal, whatever, is not new. I remember about 20 years ago having an employee who got food poisoning and uh, she was acutely ill for a couple of days, but even two or three weeks later was saying, I just don't feel right and my stomach isn't right and that sort of thing. So this is not a particularly unusual situation. Long COVID is a syndrome, not a disease, because the spike protein which causes the problem travels everywhere in the body when you have been infected. Doctors and researchers are hypothesizing a lot about what might help, for example, supplements. And, um, and a lot of discussion of potential metabolic pathways and interactions, not a lot of evidence, but um, one of the reasons, another reason I want to look into this is that um, it's becoming very lucrative to specialize in the long COVID space, um, which I think is um, a little disingenuous. And I wanted to be able to present an honest version of what is going on out there. A lot of elaborate explanations and exotic treatments are offered for um, like inflammation. I mean, inflammation is something we have dealt with in healthcare. For as long as I've been in healthcare, it's not unusual. It's not just associated with long COVID and suggesting that there's some kind of special thing that you do for inflammation. People who experience inflammation associated with long COVID is just a little crazy in my opinion. And so um, I started to see right away as I looked into this that you wanna go for the low hanging fruit, a conservative approach. And so when I explain what I do to people who aren't familiar with my work, um, I, I tell people, look, the, the most likely simplest explanation for something is what you want to assume until you know better. So I've always taught by analogy. So the way I explain it is, look, I live in Columbus, Ohio. And if I hear hoofbeats outside my window, it is probably deer, most likely deer, actually. Now, animals escape from the zoo, so there is the possibility that we could have zebras in my yard. But before we start building concrete barriers and battening down the hatches around here, I think we could safely assume for the time being that it's deer, because it would really be rare to have zebras in the yard in Worthington, Ohio, um, ever, right? Okay, so that's how we're going to look at this. 
So um, the official term, there are a lot of different terms, but the most commonly used is post-acute sequela of COVID-19 or PASC. And it's characterized by symptoms that persist after initial infection. And one of the challenges in researching it is that there are a lot of different terms used to describe it, long COVID-19, long haul COVID, post-acute COVID-19, et cetera. And so if you're doing literature searches like I was to find out what are people publishing, what are they saying, even case reports can be instructive, um, you run the search a whole lot of different ways because different people are referring to this by different names. So the definition is broad and, and in fact begins to encompass anything that has bothered people sometimes for a decade um, before, all right? So um, symptoms, signs, abnormal clinical parameters that persist two or more weeks post COVID and don't return to baseline. Um, but a lot of these um, case studies and, and uh, studies in general don't really account for the fact that um, some of these people were pretty sick before they got COVID. In other words, yesterday, if you listen to my lecture on um, nutrition and immune function, which bears on COVID because, you know, it, it, COVID is a function. If you get sick, uh, you know, depressed immunity leads to illness. But, but my point is that the most likely people to develop severe COVID were people who are overweight, diabetic, and hypertensive, many of whom were medicated and had other comorbidities too. So what, what happens in this post-COVID, you know, long COVID space is that nobody's accounting or very few are accounting for the fact that sick people got sicker and then had trouble recovering. And as I'll show you when we get into what to do about it, a lot of it is looking at what was wrong before and fixing that. And then like magic, the long COVID goes away too. So age, gender, underlying health conditions, viral dose, risk factors, um, physical deconditioning as a result of being ill for a long time, physical and mental health issues resulting from being sick for a long time and also resulting from just the terror that people experience for a very long time about this. And then social, economic and environmental stress resulting from the pandemic itself. So, you know, let's take your overweight, diabetic, hypertensive, not doing very well person who um, has two children who are schooling at home and then gets COVID and is economically distressed because of um, inability to work. And is it shocking that the person has become sicker after this? And then how do you unpack all of that and help the person get well? And so um, it's distressing for me to see that some people are just proposing buy my supplement packs and all this sort of thing, because I can't fathom how all this that I just described to you could possibly be dealt with with uh, six supplements and you know, good luck with the rest of that. That's never how we've been able to help people get well over the 27 years we've been in business. It's always with a total person approach, whole person approach. Nobody knows how many people are affected. And just to give you an idea, one uh, GAO report from the government said it's somewhere between 7.7 .7 and 23 million people. And uh, that's a pretty broad range. And so that tells you that the condition is in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent. Um, the estimation is that about a million people are unable to work. And of course, that's another subjective thing um, uh, that, that we could look at too, but we're gonna focus on the physical. So the common symptoms, here's the list. And as you can see, it's everything. It's everything and anything gets lumped into long COVID. 
Um, and by the way, one of the difficulties of this is we don't really even know who had COVID because we were using a test with 100% false positive rate based on when it was used before. So, you know, who knows what, what's really gone on? I believe some people did have COVID, but again, um, was it the COVID or was it the, was it the underlying conditions before that make the difference? So mood changes and, and um, uh, headaches and cognitive impairment or brain fog, those are things people were complaining a lot before there was any COVID. There's a lot of crossover to other syndromes like chronic fatigue, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, mast cell uh, activation syndrome. And um, the same symptoms were reported following infection with other coronaviruses. So again, not new, just bigger and a lot of crossover with um, some of these other conditions, which as it turns out, when we've taken histories on people, they were offering, often suffering from before they had SARS-CoV-2. There are no lab tests that definitively confirm long COVID and can clinically differentiate it from a very long list of conditions um, that exist separate and apart. Um, a positive COVID-19 test isn't required and most of them don't mean much anyway. So the way that you have to look at this if you're a responsible practitioner is take a history, look at the symptoms, perhaps a physical exam and testing. We don't do that in my office, but most people have been tested enough by the time they get to us, they really don't need any more testing. Clinical testing can cause harm. And I've always, we've talked about this in many of my lectures that I've delivered to, at this conference before, the danger of um, the more you test, the more you find, the older the person is, the more there is to find. And the question is, is it an incidental finding? And um, incidental findings make people just as nervous as the ones that are being deliberately looked for. A lot of anxiety about abnormal results that aren't clinically significant. In fact, um, one of the things that I'm bothered by almost every day in my office is that 27 years ago, people used to get a blood test or a lab test in their doctor's office and it was two pages long. Now it comes in a UPS box because they're looking at so many different things. And on the surface, that can sound like a good idea. But the problem is, again, you the more you look, the more you find and you see all these flags, little tiny differences that probably would be different if you took the specimen 15 minutes later, but they make people nervous. And the medical system benefits from people people who are nervous about their health instead of confident in their bodies, which we talked about yesterday. Um, and then time and money invested in medical appointments. So again, when people come to us and say, I think I have long COVID because I had it and I was really sick for a week and, and it just seems like I've never been the same before we start testing to find exotica, let's go for the low hanging fruit. Again, we're in Ohio, let's assume it's deer, not zebra. And most, I mean, we haven't had a case yet where that wasn't the situation, where if you look at the diet and the habits and the physical status before, um, you find your problem right there. So uh, I mentioned this before, one of the big issues is the, is the faulty testing. And so um, I tell people, look, it doesn't matter what you had. You say you were sick for a week, I believe you, or 10 days or whatever it was, all right? You say you were sick for a week, I believe you. You say you feel like crap right now, I believe you. I'm looking at your medical history, not shocking where you are right now. And, um, and, and I also think you have to allow some time to get better. In other words, I'm concerned about the person who is not better a month or two later or longer. I'm not concerned about the person who says last week I had the flu or COVID or whatever it is, and then 
you know, it's, it's Monday of the following week and I'm not back to myself. I've had the flu three times during the last um, 27 years. And by the way, every single time it had nothing to do with my physical health status as much as it did the stress that I was under at the time, which is why I remember um, the times that I had the flu. It's because things that were going on in my life were very stressful. And so, um, you know, you're sick as a dog for however long it is, and then it's a, it's a couple of weeks to recover. So we're talking, I want to really differentiate that it doesn't matter what the person's test says. It matters what they're telling you about their symptoms and their state of health and their history and all that kind of thing. And we're looking at a time differential that's really important. Two weeks later, I'm not so concerned that you're not back to normal yet, but two months or a year later, this is highly concerning and deserves looking at. So SARS-CoV-2 is not unique in causing post-infection sequela. Um, and, um, and, and so if you take a look here, I'll show you some other examples. If you survive Ebola, you are likely to have a whole list of problems ranging from inflammatory conditions of the eye to numbness and tingling and difficulty swallowing and fever and stiffness in joints. And Ebola is a pretty serious disease, not shocking, right? Uh, polio, um, it can reemerge 15 to 40 years after initial illness. And um, I'm of a generation, I'm in the same generation as some people who had uh, actually had polio. And I've seen this happen uh, with uh, acquaintances of mine. Um, West Nile virus, motor disturbances and muscle weakness. So this is a common thing, fibromyalgia or IBS or chronic fatigue after an infection. So it's not mysterious, it's not new, and having difficulty recovering from um, some type of infection is not, I mean, even, even people who have taken an antibiotic for a respiratory, for a, um, a, a bacterial infection have said that sometimes it takes a month to get back to normal after taking an antibiotic for seven days, all right? Now, I'm telling you this not because I wanna discount the suffering that people have, we wanna relieve the suffering that people have, well, I think part of it is a psychological issue where we don't want people being panicked about their health, right? Oh my gosh, you know, everybody hears all these horror stories and, and I'm never going to get well again and I have some exotic thing wrong with me. So just knowing that it's not quite so exotic maybe puts a little bit of, uh, takes a little stress off the situation. So some of the categories of people who have what we're referring to as long COVID, um, people who have uh, who had severe COVID and might have lung or other organ damage as a result of pneumonia or acute respiratory distress syndrome. And again, that can be a function of age and comorbidities that existed before. Lingering symptoms after being in the ICU, if you were lucky enough to survive. Um, a syndromes uh, characterized by unexplained exertion intolerance, fatigue, cognitive and sensory disturbances, um, people who continue to have respiratory symptoms um, uh, that, that like dyspnea, shortness of breath, chest pain, and then um, notoriously, a lot of people with uh, taste and smell issues, um, and those tend to occur independent of the other symptoms. So the prognosis, um, you know, again, we'll look at some of the other conditions that frequently have long-term sequela. And um, so if you look at adolescents and young adults, you get mononucleosis from initial 30 to 40% of cases with persistent symptoms for several weeks. The prevalence drops to eight to 14% at six months and seven to 9% at 12 months. And some studies have even shown longer duration. 
And so this goes to something when I'm talking to somebody who has long COVID, who says, I can't get well, one of the things that you want to look at is, are you better than you were last month at this time? Because if you're better now than you were last month at this time, maybe you're just one of these people who's going to take a, a year to get better. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want to change your diet and hydration and all that sort of thing. But sometimes people really haven't stopped to think that I'm miserable, but I'm getting better. And so if you're getting better and you're on the road to recovery and you're positioning it that way instead of I'm miserable, that has a huge effect on your psychological state. And believe me, psychological state has a lot to do with physical health. Um, Another study that looked at 157 people who had West Nile virus in Houston, 40% continued to experience symptoms up to eight years later. And, um, and of course, what that tells us is that if you're still sick eight years later, then either your state of health might have been terrible, um, that's often the case, or and we should be doing something for these people. So someplace between you're getting better and maybe in a few months you'll be all better versus you're sick eight years later is, is, um, is where we usually find people. Mm -hmm.